episode of the Morton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Benedivo. And today, I had the privilege of hosting Dan Kimmerling, founder and managing partner of Desians Capital. And Dan has had a very interesting career. He was the first employee at TechCrunch and then went on to co-found Standard Treasury, which was one of the very first banking as a service startups. And he served as its CEO until it was acquired by Silicon Valley Bank. And Standard Treasury had a very interesting story. It was building leading API solutions in the global financial services community way back before that was a normal thing that existed in the market. It was backed by Y Combinator, A16Z, and Index Ventures. We spoke a lot about Dan's time as a founder and a lot of the lessons that he learned, as well as his transition into becoming an investor. And what was a bit more challenging, what were some of the things he learned and how he became a better coach to founders from what he learned as a founder. Since founding Desians, Dan has found a lot of success, including investing in Chipper, Therma, and Treasury Prime. Academically, Dan, like me, is a graduate of the University of Chicago. So we talked a little bit about that, but the things that he learned from his time at University of Chicago. And with that, welcome you to another episode and enjoy the podcast. And with that, a warm welcome to Dan Kimmerling from Desians. Dan, how's it going? Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Albuquerque, which is where I end up spending a lot of my time, especially in the winter. As you know, the winters in Chicago are not that much fun. So I love being here. And thank you for having me. Of course. So for our listeners, why don't you start off by just giving us a bit of background on yourself and on Destiny's Capital? Yeah, of course. I was born and raised in New Jersey and then went to University of Chicago for college and graduate school. And after graduate school, I moved to the Bay Area to be the first employee at TechCrunch. After TechCrunch, I ended up starting a company called Standard Treasury, which was a very early fintech business. And I suspect we'll end up talking a fair bit about Standard Treasury. We ended up selling Standard Treasury to Silicon Valley Bank. And I was at the bank for a number of years before starting Desians in 2017. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to jump into each part of your story because it is really interesting. I think there's so much for our listeners to learn from, from each section of your story. I think, first off, I'm also a UChicago guy. So out of curiosity, because UChicago is a unique school, what was the most impactful lesson that you learned from your time at UChicago? I think the things I come away from it are very simple. Be an effective thinker, be an effective writer, and work like a fucking maniac. If you do those three things, those are like pretty elemental lessons. Like a few years after graduate school, you're already jumping out and starting your own company. What was the founding story there? How did you have like the gusto, let's say, to do that, especially at a time where it wasn't like now where it's a pretty normal path coming out of graduate school, whatever it might be. It's reasonably normal. What kind of gave you the push back then, back in 2013? I just came to see that I was not ever going to be able to work in a normal work environment. I just have come to see that like I love having partners and collaborators and I like to believe or I hope to believe that I am a good partner and collaborator. But like working a nine to five job in an office, wearing a suit and tie with a normal lame boss, that's never going to fucking work for me. Never. I had to find my own path. And ultimately, that path was the entrepreneurial path. And then I think at the end of the day, vis-a-vis under treasury, Honestly, a lot of my inspiration was Stripe. I mean, John and Patrick are incredible entrepreneurs. And Twilio, but Twilio would be another inspiration. So you're like, Stripe does APIs for credit cards, merchant acquiring. 
But there's so much outside of merchant acquiring that exists in the financial services ecosystem. Could we go build a business that kind of pays homage to Stripe and to Twilio with a much wider aperture? Now take me through Standard Treasury itself. So a lot of the people listening in, their dream path is the path that you took at Standard Treasury. You went to YC. You were funded by Index Ventures and A16Z. Venture of the Year by Swift. People listening in, that's their dream. Take us through, I guess, the effect that had on you as a founder, as a company, maybe some interesting tidbits or things that you wouldn't expect, ways that maybe it helped you. I think ultimately any entrepreneurial journey is the journey of self-discovery. At Standard Treasury, I clearly learned a lot about myself. We built a great team. I'm actually still in touch with a large portion of the people that we had working with us then. Many of them are at our portfolio company, Treasury Prime. But ultimately, kind of what I discovered through that process is that I'm much more of a coach than I am a player on the field. And I don't hold one as better or worse than the other. But really, I saw that I got much more satisfaction, just emotional, energetic satisfaction through coaching and supporting the work of others. So that was one thing. The second thing is the world of financial services is rapidly changing and digital distribution, even today, over a decade later, we're still very early in that transition. And that will be one of the major stories of my lifetime, I'm sure, the digital distribution of financial services. I think the third thing would be, there's this Henry Ford quote that goes something like, wealth comes through service to others. And I really kind of thought, now looking back, all the accolades that we won and all the hype and the money and all that, it's great. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, what I'm most, we sold the company over eight years ago. Looking back, what I'm most proud of is the customers we served and our ability to service them well and help them, including, you know, one of our major customers at the time was Silicon Valley Bank, and also the team and all the great things that the team has gone on to do. If you really focus on being in service to others, I think that that's one of the major takeaways from that experience. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? What did Standard Treasury actually do back in the day? I think it's an interesting story for listeners because it shows like the beginning of that section of fintech that is now proliferated and is now much bigger. Yeah, of course. The simple theory was that ultimately there would be a financial institution, a bank, a licensed depository that would offer products and services where the primary user experience was an API. You know, there are branches and telephone and website, fax. But the idea that you would have a financial institution where the primary user experience would be an API and that it would be embeddable, that was very novel in 2012, 2013, even when we sold it in 2015. I feel like we were very cutting edge. I mean, I look at Treasury Prime today, which is an incredible company. And I see that like the timing that Chris and Jim had was much more fortuitous than the timing I had, for example, in 2013. I think the ideas were right, but we were probably a turn or two too early. And I think that that has really changed. Timing and its impact are extremely important. It's just something I've really internalized as I become a venture capitalist 
is the importance of being right at the right time. There's a famous line, being right at the wrong time and being wrong look the same. (laughs) How do you take that to now? Because jumping ahead a little bit, but I am curious, in terms of timing, how do you think about timing when you're investing, when you're thinking about entrepreneurs or founders? And specifically when you're talking to a founder, what's that framework or that gut check that you say the timing just seems a little too early or you know what, boom, this is the right time. Let's say treasury prime, that they hit it, market rate. Yeah. You're always looking for some kind of catalytic behavior that helps advance the agenda. I think that's critical. I think with a lot of our companies, we're looking to make sure that you could like have wins in your sales or have headwinds. And you'd much rather like invest in things where the sale is full and you're making great progress. So I think you're just like in general trying to avoid situations where you're pushing a boulder uphill and having, you know, come down on you over and over again. That sucks. So what you're really looking for this situations where for whatever reason or combination of reasons, there's like a lot of things kind of pushing you forward. And how do you track that? It's like metrics. Is there some sort of growth metric that you can find or? The metrics are important, of course. But ultimately, it's really a subjective assessment. Like you're basically thinking about Charlie Munger, who recently passed away, said that what he wanted to do was buy companies where the business would survive for 100 years. If you're thinking about it using a similar kind of lens, which is, I hope, what we do, what you're really looking for are businesses that have just macro tailwinds that they can exploit and building deep moats around their business models such that they can avoid many of the quite pernicious effects that happen around deflationary nature of software. I've written about the fact that software is highly deflationary, and that means that most software companies are susceptible to massive margin compression over time. If you are built, if what you're looking for are businesses where there's lots of tailwinds that have deep moats. And if you can find those, you're halfway there. Take me through that, for example, with Treasury Prime's APIs. So let's say you're building a layer that sits in between. This is functionally what Standard Treasury did as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're building a business that's... Very, very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Building a business that's in between banks and customers are interacting through the bank, through your API as the, you're the API layer that's in between the bank and the end user. This is the primary use case that you're saying and that to prevent it from being deflationary, you're saying that you need to have some competitive modes. You need to really have like a winner take. What you're looking for are, there are certain kinds of business model characteristics that lend themselves to durable value creation. And those tend to be, there are four of them. You want to invest in businesses that have increasing returns to scale, ever-deepening moats in winner-take-all or winner-take-most markets that are very large. You have those four, and you really need all four. And I think whenever we go into an underwriting process, we have to have confidence that all four are there. Oddly enough, the one that's least important is how large the market is. Because for a lot of businesses, the markets are just very nascent. So you have to make a bet that the market size will be there when you arrive there 5, 10, 15 years from now. I love that. I need to write that down. <laughs> Those four, four characteristics evaluated as a- Certainly founders should be thinking about this. That's the thing. Like Founders 
are the biggest investors in the company, not because they have infinitely high opportunity cost of time. In economics, what you would call this is the problem of game selection. A big part is like, are you working on the right problem to be working on? That is a precursor to the question of, have you come up with a novel and interesting solution to that problem? And I often wonder, like, do founders spend enough time on this question of game selection? Are they really rigorously thinking, is this the right problem to be working on now? Yeah. And let's take this for example. I guess the treasury prime standard treasury example, it's a pretty clear problem. It's banks' APIs are nearly impossible to use, if at all possible, which most banks are not. And if you want to build a software solution that has some sort of financial services in it, you need to use the API. It's pretty straightforward. I would even go one step further. In the United States, if you want to offer banking services, you need to either be a bank or partner with a bank. I mean, the prudential regulatory framework is very clear on that. Non-banks, for example, cannot offer depository products in the United States. Non-banks cannot have direct primary access to things like ACH, Fedwire, credit cards, and the like. Banks are the gateway to the regulated financial system. So if you want to offer financial products, you either need to be a bank or work with one. I want to use this as like a case study for your framework, if that's okay. This is fascinating. And you know this business probably better than anyone, maybe alongside the founders of Treasury Prime. Not anyone, but I know it relatively well. Okay. Increasing returns of scale makes sense. It's software. Software, you build it, you can sell it a million times. But to be clear, that's actually not increasing returns to scale. That would be linear returns to scale. If you build it and you sell the same thing over and over again, and you get the same amount of juice out of it, that's linear returns to scale. What you're looking for are businesses that at scale are better than they are at, like, as they get larger, the business model gets better. And with Treasury Prime, because we are able to partner with a number of banks, more than just one bank. We actually are better for each and every bank that we work with actually means that we're better for all the banks in our ecosystem. And then that's the kind of way that you develop a kind of increasing returns to scale. And you're not just in the widget selling business. Yeah, totally get it. Winner take all, winner take most market. Super competitive market right now. Why does that fall? With I'm not actually sure. When you're investing in a seed company. I invested in Treasury Prime five years ago, almost six years ago. But when you're investing in a seed company, like if you're investing in a net new idea right now, what you're really trying to do is assess, do you think that it has the potential to have like a small number of winners? I think Peter Thiel wrote very eloquently in Zero to One that competition is for losers. You want to like find a structure, a market structure that allows the winner to consolidate and therefore claim the vast majority of the economic gains. Now give some background on your transition into Decian's, maybe some main things you learned on your first foray into investing. For sure. I mean, when I was leaving SVB, I knew that I wanted to do financial services, venture capital, and I knew I wanted to do it with a focus on early stage. And that led me to starting Decian's. I would say like I've been doing Decian's now almost eight years I think the thing that I've come to see is that any kind of investing is really about finding style alignment. You know, at Decians, we work a certain way. Myself, my colleagues, Ishan, Vishal, Amy, Aylan, Maddie, we work in a one way. 
and it really aligns with who we are and our personality. Conversely, we would be terrible, just absolutely terrible running somebody else's playbook. So I think it's about really finding that alignment of style and personality. And I would say like there were some things that I really understood about that at the very beginning. So I can fund one, even from the first fund one deal one, we wanted to lead financings. Leading financings is really important. But then I would say like some other things we've really grown into, like our incubation program, having a much more thoughtful and engaged LP audience and making sure that we work very closely with our limited partners, how we engage with founders has evolved. I think all of those are a lot of lessons, a lot of a lot of shoe leather, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears for sure. What's harder, starting and running a venture firm or starting and running a company? I'd say what's more challenging? For me, I can only speak for myself. Starting Destiance is challenging than starting Sander Treasury, for example. I can't speak for anybody else though. Which is interesting because you said it's easier for you to be a coach. Do you find yourself being more of a coach these days, more in VC or being a coach more as a founder, coaching maybe early employees? your board, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, venture capital is really, there's the work we do with entrepreneurs and management teams. There's the work we do with the limited partners though. And I didn't come at venture capital with a deep appreciation or knowledge or network in the limited partner ecosystem. So I think a lot of the last several years has been really developing that capability and those skills. And the learning curve has been just phenomenal in that regard. I would say even today, a lot of my work is working with entrepreneurs. Not that I don't adore our team and work very closely with them each and every day, but I would say like when I think about my zone of genius, it's like being a coach to entrepreneurs who are building incredible companies and financial services. I would love for our listeners to somehow get access to that coaching. Is there something that's maybe generally applicable for founders in fintech that maybe they overlook, tend to overlook? We publish a lot of our work on Destians.com. And you could obviously follow Destians on you know all the social platforms. But I think it's like being an entrepreneur is like chewing glass and learning to like the taste of your own blood. It really sucks. It really, really sucks. Just make sure you're going into it for the right reasons. I think that's a lot of it. Go into it because you just have this burning need to change the world and that you're like so committed to your idea that you'll like run through burning buildings for it. That's what it takes to create the most superlative companies. And how do you coach founders through that? Just like constantly remind them of why they're doing what they're doing or or anything specific? I think when we talk about coaching, coaching really has three buckets. One is, I joke that 50% of the job is being an investment banker, 50% of the job is being a management consultant, and 50% of the job is being a rabbi. What any founder needs, and for your non-Jewish listeners, that could be priest, imam, and any kind of spiritual coach or advisor, because it is very spiritually hard. It really wears on people. But if you can help them figure out what the most important problems are, help them solve those problems, and help them keep their head in the game, you know, you've made some real progress. That's awesome. Sounds awesome. I mean, that's, I'm sure exactly what founders want to hear who are listening, right? That's exactly what you're looking for. Someone to help you, investment banker, consultant, or spiritually, or as a rabbi. I really love that. So you mentioned before that you help dampen the highs and the lows of being a founder. 
that's almost like your role as an investor occasionally. How do you do that? Is it being that rabbi? Is it just being that spiritual coach? Or is there something more? I think part of it is seeing more patterns, right? Like Dessians now has done 20 something core deals over the last seven years and change. So a lot of what you're trying to do is just have more data points, more reps. And like one of those reps that we've come to see is this idea that this too shall pass. If your company is fucking on fire and everybody loves it and they're throwing cash at you and all the adoration and et cetera, remember, this too will pass. If things suck and you have to fire people and you're sweating it and you're running out of money and so on and so on and so on, remember, this too will pass. And I think like what you have to do is try and stay very level-headed, stay very equimenious is the word I would use. Because this too shall pass, no matter what it is. I love that. Now, some other things that you've mentioned that you, at Desians, that you like to invest in companies that fuck with banks for fun. I love that. Could you maybe give some examples of what that looks like? I have in the past said certain things. One of the things I've said in the past is that we like to invest in companies that fuck with banks for fun and hopeful profit. In my view on the topic is ultimately that banks play a very important role in our financial system. But... Also, they are an inhibitor of innovation. Part of what we're trying to do is try to, in some ways, help change the culture of banking in the United States in order to just promote more innovation and competition, ultimately to service customers. I think at the end of the day, customers need to be satisfied with what's going down. They need to be satisfied. And you just look at any of the customer satisfaction data on financial institutions like NPS scores or the like, and they're fucking terrible. Customers hate their financial institutions. One of the surveys I've seen is like consumers like their banks about as much as going to the dentist or calling the cable company. These are not beloved institutions. Insofar as we can be a bit of an antagonist, we will be an antagonist towards the benefit of helping consumers and small businesses get better financial services, and live their lives. Are there any trends or as you see more and more data, let's treat you like a fine-tuned machine learning model. Are there any trends within fintech that you're starting to see or that are becoming clear over time? The thing that I just come back to over and over again is that in a country of 330, 340 million people, their needs are quite heterogeneous. I think we continue to see interesting innovation around how do we segment customers and through that process of segmentation, just deliver much higher quality experiences. We're investors in this company, TrueLink Financial, that does this as an example for the elderly and their caregivers. And I think our ability to do further segmentation and really help support customers in their respective journeys is just that's really where it's going to be. Yeah. And that makes sense in the banking as a service backdrop too, because the idea is that it's a lot easier for these people who are building customer experiences in each bucket. It's a lot easier for them. They don't have to do a full integration with the bank. You can just hit an API. And what we want to do is we want to make it easier to run experiments. I think part of it is if you Desians, and we don't know the future. But what we know is we want to make it easier to run experiments. In financial services, one of the ways to make it easier to run experiments is to make it easier to partner with banks. Okay, that's cool. I like that. 
what is on your mind right now in terms of the cutting edge? You refer to a few things as like very much being at the cutting edge. The thing I'm most focused on right now is what is really going to happen in the investment management world. I think there's been relatively little innovation in the investment management world. And so we've spent a fair bit of time there in the last year. Are you thinking like robo-advisor, like wealth management or something else? No, I don't think we're quite ready to share our latest and greatest thinking. But what I can say is that we've had one macro climate for 14 years, and now we have a new macro climate. As the capital cycle turns and changes and evolves, there's going to be dislocation. And with dislocation, creates opportunity. Okay. For our listeners, where can they read the latest and greatest when it comes out? Destians.com. Also, they can follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Follow Destians on Twitter or LinkedIn. I've done a number of podcasts. So you could, uh, I suspect that if you search uh, Kim Rowling and your podcast player of choice, they'll come out. Awesome. Okay. So now as we're getting towards cool. the end of the interview, I have a couple more questions. Quick questions, quick answers. Call the lightning round. Lightning round. Let's do it. Yeah. One piece of advice for someone... Say a business school is looking to launch their own company in fintech. Excellence is the capacity to endure pain. Awesome. That's a unique one. Top book recommendation. Oh, that's hard. I read a lot of books. Power Broker by Robert Caro. Nice. Okay. I'm going to have to add that to my reading list. And lastly, if someone wants to be at the forefront of thinking in fintech, as I imagine you and Desians are, is there any place anywhere online or physically they can go to read or learn more, absorb content? I think everyone absorbs content in different ways. Personally, I get a lot out of podcasting, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. But I know different people learn in different ways. I leave it open to your listeners. I would just say, like, go back to basics. Critical to our approach is just to be first principle. If you're thinking about building or investing or working in any kind of business, really try and identify what are the first principles and learn from that. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on the Warren FinTech podcast. It's been a lot. Of course, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warren FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast, or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Warren FinTech. There, you'll be able to find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. And as always, a big thank you to our editor, Rafa Austria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.